you would please open with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. If you're using one of the Bibles in front of you in the pew, it's on page 1021. You could turn there on your phone. Uh, We've been studying this, uh, this book, this letter, for a few weeks now. And one of the things that John is concerned to do in this letter is to give the people he's writing to an assurance that they have eternal life. Uh, He's essentially answering the question, uh, how do I know if I'm a Christian or not? And uh, to that end, he has been giving a series of tests. Uh, We had earlier a, a moral test and then a relational test, and then the passage that we'll study tonight is a doctrinal test. I want to be clear that these are not tests to say, if you meet this level of performance, you can be sure that you're a Christian. What he's saying is that you are, if you are a Christian, these things will necessarily be true about your life. They are the necessary outcomes of uh, placing your faith in Jesus Christ. And so the doctrinal test is just a fancy way of saying, are asking the question, what is true? What is true and what do I do about it? It was a big deal for the people he was writing to originally, what is true, because there were some false teachers who had uh, infiltrated their church and their community. And as John describes in this passage, they're also dealing with uh, these antichrists, which we'll discuss a little bit more. And so there was a premium on what is true and what do we do about it. And I think that in that way, uh, we have, we have that in common with these original readers. We have a lot in common with them. Because the truth seems to be at the forefront of our public discourse today. You know, it, you look at the news cycle or social media or these new tools that people can use through artificial intelligence uh, to create things that look very compelling but are, are false, that are not true. We're about to enter into, or we have already entered into, another election cycle. And every time that we turn on the TV and there's a debate happening, many times you can have in real time people who are fact-checking what the different candidates say. They want to know what is true and what is false. Uh, In our day and age, uh, much of the discussion about what is true has actually been turned into a person-specific thing. That is, whatever is uh, most compelling to you based on your experiences, your desires, and your feelings, well, that's that's what's true for you. It's It's a relative kind of truth. And then you just think of the constant bombardment of advertisements and messages that we receive that tell us this is what's true and and this is how you should respond to it, most awfully to purchase something. So the truth is at a premium, you might say. That's important for us because what we believe shapes how we live. If you are convinced that you have the truth and do not, that's actually the epitome of being lost. But if you have assurance that what you believe is the truth, that's the only way in life that you can have real peace. So how do we distinguish between what is true and what is false? That's what John wants to tell us in this passage. So let's go to the text 
and see. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 27. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and be among us this evening. Would you open the eyes of our hearts to the truth of your word? Give us right understanding and application. And most of all, would you show us Jesus clearly so that we might follow him as we should. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If we're going to talk about truth, then I have to confess to you right off the bat that I am a sucker for legal dramas. I just can't get enough of shows like Lincoln Lawyer or Suits or any of these other shows, uh, these, these legal dramas. And I know that every episode is the same, that they're gonna, the main character is going to find himself in some impossible situation, and right at the very end of the episode, at the opportune time, he's going to pull out some obscure law or rule or strategy that's going to uh, unravel the whole thing, and everybody will be saved, Right. But I still watch it anyway. But I'll tell you, there's, there's one thing that I've learned from watching these legal dramas and real-life uh, legal situations, uh, for that matter. And that is that in addition to uh, compiling and, and uncovering as much evidence as possible, a defense attorney is always concerned with putting their client, the defendant, in the best light possible. They do that because they know that there's no such thing as objectivity. No matter how compelling of an argument they have, no matter how much evidence they have to point to the innocence of their client, if that jury believes that this is a bad person with a bad record, they will use whatever evidence is put before them to convict rather than to acquit. I think the, the reason, you, you could actually take that same principle and apply it to other places in life. I mean, think about negotiations between two parties who can look at the same facts and come to different conclusions because they're both trying to support their own agenda. Think about a relationship that you have with somebody else 
My wife and I happen to be polar opposites, and we routinely look at the same facts and come to totally opposite conclusions. Makes for some great fights in our house. You can think of, uh, and Christianity is another example. Some people face immense and horrible suffering in their lives, and it is the impetus which grows them closer to Christ. And some people use suffering as a reason to discount Christ and no longer follow him. We all skew the facts according to our own personal bias. No one is truly, purely objective. And so what does that mean for the truth? It means that the truth is personal. Now when I say that, I don't mean that the truth is person-specific that it's different for each one of us. I mean that the truth works on each of us in a personal way. God has actually designed it that way. It's because God has not chosen to reveal the truth to us through a series of propositional statements or arguments. He's chosen to reveal the truth to us through a person, namely Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The truth is revealed in a person. What John is concerned to do in this passage is not so much to speculate about who the Antichrist might be. What he's concerned to do in this passage is to show us Jesus in such a light that all Antichrists are dim by comparison. John wants to show us Jesus and all the promises he makes to us through his life so that any question about who the Antichrist fades by comparison. So, what is it that John says about Jesus in this passage? First, he says that Jesus gives us knowledge. Jesus gives us knowledge. First of all, that's a knowledge of the times that we live in. You'll notice at the very beginning, John says... It is the last hour. He's telling us what, what part of the age we live in. And by saying it's the last hour, he's not speculating about when Jesus will come back. The Bible's clear that nobody knows the day or the hour that he'll come back. He's saying that the last hour represents that time between Jesus' first coming and his second and final coming. We're in that, that last age of history. And he says we know this because of the antichrists that have come into the world. And these antichrists either are in direct opposition to Jesus or they pose as counterfeits to Jesus. And so in in the kind of anxious times that we live in where the truth is at a premium and we're all wondering what is actually true, Jesus is actually not all that surprised. He actually told us long ago that this would happen. That in the last hour we would face this question of what is true. And so what is the source of this knowledge that Jesus promises to give us? What's the source? Well, in verse 20, he says, You have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. What John's really getting out here is the Holy Spirit. But I believe he phrases it this way to show us how this is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. It's a, it's, he's showing us that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything people have been looking for when they seek for the truth. You see, in the Old Testament, the Holy One was a reference to God, the Father. And this anointing was something that happened to prophets, 
and priests and kings when they were set apart for their service unto the Lord. But in the New Testament, when things become clearer for us, Mark tells us in chapter 1 that Jesus is this Holy One. And the anointing that Jesus gives is the Holy Spirit. And so in John 14, when Jesus is talking to his disciples just before he goes back to the Father, what he says is that if I go, I will send the Helper, the Holy Spirit, who will remind you everything that I have taught you. He will, he will bring it to remembrance and lead you into all knowledge. Ephesians chapter 1 says that the Holy Spirit opens the eyes of our hearts to give us real understanding so that we might really know and understand the truth. Jesus gives us this knowledge through the Holy Spirit. So I think there is a a key distinction that we need to make here between the idea of revelation and illumination. Those are just fancy theological terms, but they actually have some bearing when we think about who is the Christ, the true Christ, and the Antichrist. So revelation was the process by which the Holy Spirit inspired the authors of Scripture to write down exactly what they wrote. And that process is finished when the Bible was finished. And illumination is the work now that the Holy Spirit does to help us to understand what those authors originally wrote. So revelation was the initial work, and illumination is helping us to understand it. You might think about it like learning to read and then reading to learn, right? When you first learn to read, everything is opened up to you. You can read signs. You can read books. It's this kind of revelation, so to speak. You can really understand things in a new way. And from that point forward, reading becomes illumination. You read in order to learn things. And that's how Jesus uses the Holy Spirit to work on us. But see, what was happening here is these antichrists and these false teachers were, uh, they were saying, they were claiming they had some sort of special and secret knowledge that no one else had access to. They were saying, you think it's this way, but it's actually this. We have this idea of what the truth is. And so you should follow us. You should give us your allegiance, your money, your time, your energy. And we could multiply examples of those messages coming to us today. So we have the revelation and the illumination. Another way to say it is that revelation, those who claim to have revelation will claim that it's new and that it's secret. But illumination is just giving clarity to what's already there. Giving clarity to what's already there. The reason we know that is because later in the passage, in verse 24, John says this. He says, let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. Let what you have heard from the beginning. He's just referring to the very first thing that they heard when they first put their faith in Jesus. That is the gospel. So he's showing us that growth in the Christian life or otherwise is not graduating on to some uh, more sophisticated uh, or higher level of knowledge. It's actually a more comprehensive application of that foundational and basic knowledge to all areas of our life. It's taking what we knew from the beginning, the gospel, and applying it comprehensively, more comprehensively throughout our life to all of our life. What that shows us is that this is knowledge not just about the times that we're in, and it's knowledge uh, that comes from the Holy Spirit and that it's sufficient for us. 
Jesus never said that the knowledge that he gave us would be comprehensive in the sense that it will tell you who you should marry, where you should live, how you should work, or where you should work. But he did say it was sufficient for life and godliness. In 2 Peter chapter 1, he says, By his divine power, he has given us everything we need for life and for godliness. So the knowledge that Jesus gives us is totally sufficient for anything we can face in this life. The knowledge that Jesus gives us in his revealed word, illuminated by the Holy Spirit, is totally sufficient for anything we can face in this life. Think about how that changes the way we think about anxiety. You know, the primary uh, reason behind anxiety is a lack of knowledge, isn't it? It's a fear of the unknown. And so if Jesus is telling you that I've given you not all the information, but enough, everything that you absolutely have to know and need to know, think about the peace that that brings us. You know, I know a lot of us are are anxious and we're confused, uh, particularly about the situation uh, in Israel right now. Uh, we're, we're anxious and, and confused about it because of what it might mean for peace uh, and war between nations and what bearing it might have on us. And I'm sure you've heard the, the speculation and, and different opinions about what it means for the end times as well. There's a lot of different ideas about the end times that people have, none of which are necessary to hold in order to be a Christian. We can disagree on that. But what John is saying, that in these last times, these challenging times, and we're trying to discern between truth and falsehood, that whatever may happen, war, the end of all things, whatever may happen, Jesus has told us everything we need to know. He was very intentional, actually, about that very thing. When he was leaving his disciples, he said, if I go, I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. And then in 1 Thessalonians, he says, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who have died and gone to be with the Lord. He doesn't want us to be uninformed about these things. He's promised that and he's proved that to us in his word. Jesus gives us the knowledge that we need. So if Jesus gives us this knowledge, the next question should be, well, why should we listen? Why should we listen to him over and above any other of these multitude of voices that continue to speak to us day after day? And I think part of the answer is because of the promise he gives us. We should listen to Jesus because of the promise he gives us. It's a promise of life, verse 25 says. And this is the promise he made to us eternal life. What John wants us to see in this passage is that it really all comes down to who you say Jesus is. It all comes down to who you say that Jesus is. The antichrists, he says, deny that Jesus is the Christ. And so therefore they don't have Jesus and therefore they don't have the Father. It centers on who Jesus is. Jesus gives you access to the Father. By contrast, we know that Jesus shows us what God is like. If we want to know what kind of God he is, what kind of character he has, we look at Jesus. He reveals the Father to us. And so an antichrist is really any person or system or thing 
that denies that Jesus is the Christ. And Antichrist is any person, system, or thing that denies that Jesus is the Christ. And there's really two ways they can do that. One is obviously just the outright denial, just to say it. But the second is the more insidious and I think is worthy of our attention, which is to promise you life in something else. And it's more insidious because it avoids the topic of Jesus altogether. It promises you life in something apart from Jesus and so therefore necessarily denies that Jesus is the Christ and the one that can bring you salvation and hope and peace and joy. So th- think about what that might be. I think there, we, we tend to put Antichrist in the realm of the mysterious and the unknown, but I think there's actually a lot more functional Antichrists in our world, in our day-to-day lives than we tend to think. It can even be good things. Think about different causes that, that warrant your attention or, or want your attention or your devotion. They want you to believe that if we just solve this one issue, everything in life will be better and you can have the life you've always wanted. It can be a political party or a movement that says if, if we get into power, we can put things right the way they actually should be and then you'll finally have the kind of life that you've always dreamed about. It can be relationships. A person who we desperately want to please because we believe that this person is what we need to feel whole and complete. In fact, our own hearts are deceptive to us because we can look at things like a career, uh, a certain lifestyle, certain experiences, certain possessions, and say, if I just had that, If I could just change things like that, then life would be better. Then I could really be free to serve the Lord in some meaningful ways. If he would just give me that thing. There are far more functional antichrists in our lives than we tend to think. So how do we tell the difference? Jesus makes an offer of life, and so do the antichrists. How do we tell the difference? Well, the Holy Spirit certainly helps us for sure. And there there are many ways, but I just want to suggest one to you. After the promise of life has been made, you ask this question, what is required of me? After the promise of life has been made, you ask the question, what is required of me in response? How do I get it? How do I attain that life? You see, any antichrist is like a parasite. They'll have an answer for you. They'll tell you exactly what you have to do to get this. But as you know, a parasite takes the life from its host. Jesus, in contrast, says, I'm the vine and you are the branches. Abide in me so that you might have true life. You know, in Ephesians it says that we are saved by grace through faith. And that that faith is also a gift. And so here's what Jesus says to us. He says... I've made you the promise of eternal life, and the only way to get it is through faith. And oh, by the way, that faith is something that I give you as a gift as well. He gives us everything we need to attain the promise of life that he makes. So why should we listen to Jesus? Because of the promise of life that he makes and provides for us. So if Jesus gives knowledge. Why listen? Because of the promise of life. But why trust the promise? Anybody can make a promise to us. 
Why would we trust it? You know, sometimes two-year-olds don't like their floaties. Uh, My family and I were at a pool recently, and uh, it's one of those zero-entry pools. Those are great. And my two-year-old had decided that he was done with the floaty, and he was going to wade in on his own. And so he started after it, and so I got out of the chair and followed him in. Began to reason with him, as one does with a two-year-old. And I said, Liam, you can't swim. I need to put the floaties on. No, Daddy. No, Daddy. Liam, come here, buddy. We really got to put them. And this, at this point, it's coming up above his nose. You know, you see what's happening, buddy? Put, put you back where you, can, where you can stand. Let's put the floaties on. No, Daddy. No, Daddy. And so at that point, I did something that I, I'm not going to come into you as uh, pastoral counsel. Uh, but I did it. I just took a half step back. And don't worry, I didn't let him sink for too long. It's like less than half a second. <laughs> I saw the terror in his eyes, and I, of course, grabbed him. Oh, that was so scary. Are you okay? Should we put the floaties on? Oh, let's put the floaties on. <laughs> you know, when Jesus tells us that he gives us the truth, this promise unto life, and we reject it, over and over and over again, many times to our own detriment. He didn't step back and cross his arms and say, I I told you so. I've been trying to reason with you all along. I've given you proof after proof after reason after reason after chance after chance, and still you're going to wait out in that water and sink, even though I told you you would. In fact, it's much more serious because in order for Jesus to save us, he actually had to go into the water and drown himself. Jesus had to die in order that we might live, despite our best efforts to to disbelieve, to turn away. The reason that Jesus is so insistent that he is the only way and the only truth and the only life It's because of how much he has to offer us. If you had the cure for cancer or a way to eradicate COVID once and for all, you'd never let us hear the end of it. Why should we trust the promise of life that Jesus gives us? Because he gave us his life. He gave us his very self. And why would you not trust someone like that? Why would you not follow someone who gave their whole life For you. The Christian faith is not a matter of arguments or propositions. The Christian faith is summed up in a person. It's a person who doesn't give us the argument and stand back and cross his arms and wait for us to work up the faith to believe. But it's a person who reaches out to us time and time again with scarred hands and says, Come to me, abide in me, and I will give you the life, the truth, the way that you desire. Abide in him. Come to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we do ask simply that your Holy Spirit would work these 
truths into our hearts. Overcome our objections by your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.